0: Let's begin in silence, just take a big deep breath and do what you need to do to be here or to be present, to be awake, and uh, you might want to think of the people you're grateful for that uh, make your life possible, sustain your life. And um, my prayer is that you find what you're seeking for by being here today and that everybody in this room experience and then go from here to express peace and joy. And we do this with the belief that uh, all people everywhere are benefited by what we do here. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So last week, I introduced a new theme, and Holly did the artwork. Thanks. I like it. I like it about the journey, making the sacred journey, journey. And and I think... Um,
1: making the sacred journey, journey. Well, making the sacred journey, I sacred. have dyslexia. <laughs> making the journey, a journey.
0: <laughs> making sacred to the sacred journey. And now I've thought that maybe we should have called it Making the sacred, making sacred the already sacred journey, right? Yeah. So, um, because I am a long winded preacher who preached the first service, but you, you will get out of purgatory, just remember that. If you haven't been, you're free. You're, you're, your soul is in a better shape than it was. So last week I asked you to feedback, for feedback, and I got some, and today's primarily, hopefully, for, for Holly to give us her feedback about what she heard. She was here, uh, and she tried to take copious notes, but her house was being termite-fumigated oh, <laughs> last week, so she couldn't get any paper.
1: Well, I had to. I took notes on my phone. Took notes it's on the phone. It's amazing these things we carry around in our our pocket. The termites
0: are gone. It's just deathless. so, uh, and if you had, I got responses from a bunch of people, and we can't deal with all of them today. But it does give us kind of a roadmap for some things going forward. And one of the first questions I got even before I left the space was, "What is your definition of sacred?" And now Holly's going to answer that. That's no. Right. <laughs> so um, there's, there there you know, I love words and words. It's a thing that Well, we get a lot of words from the word sacred. And you've likely heard of all of them. There's sacrament, sacrifice, sacrilege, sacristan. That's a person who does sacred things. Sacristy. That's where we get robed before the game across the street. Sacrosanct. The word sacred originally meant simply to set apart, to take from one place and to put other. And then it came to mean to declare something as being sacred, to be holy or to be special. Um, And it, it then became applied to places of worship or ritual, to the objects that were used in worship and ritual, to the people who conducted those rituals, um, the places where they prepared for such a ritual. And then after the word sacred came into the vocabulary, and all of this happened around the 13th century, another word had to come into the vocabulary for that which was not sacred, and that was the word secular. Which came in, into the language after that. By the way, another word that came about a hundred years after that is the word "profane," and the word "profane" literally means to be outside the temple door. Pro, for.
1: You don't have to walk like that if you don't want to. <laughs>
0: I've just been brought down. <laughs> <laughs> Pro meaning outside faunus, the temple, outside, just outside the temple door in front of or outside the temple. So very likely, very early attempts at rituals, you know, like how we were aware that we were dependent on the weather for our crops and the animals for food. <coughs> we began to have rituals about that. And if you just walk across the street, uh, not at 11.
1: Gosh.
0: But after that, you go walk across their way and have lunch, then go over there, and you can see some of the earliest rituals having to do with, religious rituals having to do with burial. Burial and belief in some form of afterlife. So these were the first things that they were designated as as survival things. So um, as people grew in consciousness, and so did our sophistication, although some people would say we're not very sophisticated today, Uh, the church began, uh, religious groups began to be ritualized. You can see this in Shintoism, Hinduism, Buddhism, all the the First Nations people's religions. They developed rituals and they developed words that they used in those rituals. And in the Christian church, um, we developed words for those times in our lives when there were events, that were clearly more meaningful than some other events. And these events involve death. They involve marriage. I've conducted hundreds of marriage ceremonies in my ministry. Hers. And I will tell you, there are people who attend weddings who weep, and they are not sure why. Okay? It's because there's such a deep archetypical node hit during a wedding ceremony that touches people's unconscious in ways. Burials and memorial services can do that. Baptisms can do that. Being at the bedside of somebody who's dying can do that. So the church developed these things that they call sacraments, sacred moments that they set aside, um, and, and that's technical. So my, my, here's my definition, current definition of, of sacred Because it has to do, I believe that all of life is sacred, that all of you are sacred, that what we're doing is sacred, every breath is sacred. But my personal definition has mostly to do with a level of awareness and understanding. It involves waking up to the present moment and all who are in the present moment, all that is in the present moment, and relating to that with acceptance and compassion. Now, sadly, most of the time we aren't present. Um, so there are some events, gut-reaching, some of them are, that just cut across our regular way of life and we wake up and we declare those moments where it's kind of like uh, your favorite story. Mm-hmm. Jacob. Jacob, and, and uh, Jacob, after the wrestling with the angels, um, had a dream and then after that he said, surely God is in this place and mm-hmm. I didn't know it. Mm-hmm. So we have that, When of these moments cut across our lives. And again, in the interest of being accurate with language, we have been taught that the word transcendent means up. Trans doesn't mean up. Transportation doesn't mean up. It means across. Mm-hmm. So transcendent is something that cuts across our lives, stops us dead in our tracks, and and we wake up. Mm. So there's my stuff mm. and Holly's gonna take it the rest of the way. That's
1: right.
0: No. And I'm gonna interrupt and heckle.
1: Okay, poke me. Um, I do have a
0: few things I'd like to say, but
1: Well you I think you put them. He's joking. He's not really letting me talk the whole time. Can you imagine? Um, You just said the definition of profane, which I hadn't um, sort of associated this with yet, but Jesus took the entire movement and made it profane. He took it outside of the temple. And in that sense, the profane is sacred, right? He said that the the temple is here, the temple is wherever Mm -hmm. we are. So... I think this, there's just a razor's edge, not even difference between sacred and profane, whereby everything profane is actually also sacred. Anyway, your title last week was in direct reference to Nietzsche, who was ultimately driven mad by the question of whether God was dead or not. Um, his point, as I understood it, is that if we be- say we believe in this loving God, and then we behave in such a way that doesn't mirror that loving God, then that God must be dead. And so this this resurrection that needs to happen is to reawaken the love within us that then gets put out into the world so that neither God nor us, nor what is sacred or profane is dead. And he anticipated this move that now we're in this post-theistic, kind of theological era, I would say. And he really anticipated that we as humans are co-creators, co-evolvers with this mystery, with whatever it is that we refer to as God. For me, I I just call it reality. There's no difference between out there and in here. We can debate that later. (laughs) But as you talked, I did a quick inventory of what I thought I knew about God as a kid and perhaps well into my young adulthood. One, God is male, not female. God is bearded, not young and fresh-faced. You're in luck if you have a beard. (laughs) Um, God is white, not black or brown. God is out there somewhere and not in here. God is the unmoved mover, the clockmaker. God doesn't evolve, he is fixed. I think every single one of these beliefs needs to be deconstructed, and I've probably been in the process of deconstructing them for the last... I can't do anything about my mic, but it's on, but I can maybe speak more into my chest, huh? Um, <laughs> I, you could
0: move it higher up here. Yeah, I could.
1: Um, we'll figure it out. But anyways, I think each one of these beliefs needs to be deconstructed. Starting with most of our prayers that begin with our Father or Heavenly Father or our Father who art in heaven, who is out there, that immediately displaces God from active presence and into this aloof distance. Is that better? Can you hear me? Okay. okay. You ask the question, why is there something rather than nothing? My quick answer and maybe rather snarky answer is, well, nature abhors a vacuum. Matter longs for connectivity. It cannot help itself but to be drawn toward something. We've turned the force of gravity into words like love, intimacy, adoration, praise, but ultimately there's this need to recognize that this force, whatever it is, this somethingness is in us. We have that same capacity for connectivity that is already present there's something powerful operating in us that does connect, that does draw toward, that binds.
0: So one of the questions that I got, um, and more than once, and it's expressed as a concern, is about not using the word God.
1: Yeah. Mm.
0: It's a very Hebraic tradition. You don't say Mm -hmm. the word God.
1: Mm -hmm. You also don't say Voldemort.
0: You just did.
1: So did you. Just say God. <laughs> well, that
0: shows the difficulty of the problem. Uh-huh. You can't avoid it. Uh-huh. You can't avoid it. My argument is that the very word God, the reflex that most people have is out and up,
2: mm-hmm.
0: away, not here. And uh, I was thinking after I got a couple of responses about that, well, of course, when I offer the pastoral prayer and the liturgy across the street, I use that word. I've sometimes not, but um, you just, to your own self, if the word God is, connotes to some, to you, an energy, presence, love, whatever word you want to use that's here and not elsewhere, use it. Um, Last week, uh, in mentioning the God is Dead movement, I mentioned the church renewal movement. And I said, and I don't mean this in any sense of arrogancy or anything, but those of us who were involved in the study of theology in the 60s and the 70s were in no way surprised by the God is Dead movement or by the church renewal movement. Because we had been hearing things all along about desires to get some new energy going in the Christian church that matched what Jesus was teaching about one of the first endeavors I ever heard about when I was in a seminary was a church that is still in existence it has like 40 different small campuses you can look it up on the internet called the Church of the Savior which is started by a man named Gordon Cosby and Church of the Savior was you've heard of it you've heard of it you grew up in Wow. It. Wow, <laughs> I need to, I didn't know that, Mark. Washington, D. C., right? In wow. Washington DC. You know the Church of the Savior was Did you know Gordon Cosby?
1: Absolutely.
0: Huh. Oh, wow. You want to teach? This te- has got
1: a lot more interesting. <laughs> you want to teach next
0: Sunday? <laughs> oh, no, I mean really, I'd love to have a conversation with you about it. I have a story. It's like uh, the
2: original podcast, I must have been 2 years old and he had cassette
1: tapes. Cassette <laughs> yeah. Thing.
0: Of Same. Gordon Cosby. That's amazing. Yeah. You know, the Church okay. of the Savior was started in 1940. And um, oh, wow. it's an amazing congregation. It's still in existence. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, to show you how funky they were, if you wanted to join the church, they would say, okay, come on and join, but we would like for you, we accept you immediately, but you, we would like for you to postpone accepting us for a year. Just come every Sunday for a year, and after that, you still think you want to join? Okay, that's good. So there was this woman named Elizabeth O'Connor who wrote a book about this church, um, um, and it was called The Call to Commitment. (laughs) It was a great book. And then later on, she wrote about how that church functions, and she wrote a book called Journey Inward, Journey Outward. Uh, Both these books are out of print, but you can go on and get them and read reprint. The Call to Commitment is a great book. The Journey Inward, Journey Outward is a fantastic book. And that's the first time I consciously started using the word journey about my teaching. Of course I knew about Abraham and of course I knew the early Jesus followers who call people away. I knew all of that stuff. I had not yet met Robert Johnson. I didn't know about his journey into wholeness, not attended any of his works or got anything from him but this journey thing became something that became part of my own vocabulary at that particular time and so I just want you to know that we're not I'm not coming out of a place of nowhere and this is not a new movement in spiritual teaching the Abraham journey is the beginning of faith It's in the Hebrew tradition the Moses journey through the wilderness is in the tradition of faith. The Jesus journey from uh, Nazareth to Jerusalem is an is a archetype of our own journey that we're going to be talking about. The word archetype, an archetype for journey. Um, the early Jesus followers were called people of the way, so this is nothing new about that. So Journey is a tricky word. Because it implies destination. Mm -hmm. And there's no place to get to. You're already there. But we call it the journey of our being, developing the awareness that we are already in the sacred heart of mystery. That's a journey that we make. Um, In uh, probably the worst, Part of my own personal life back in the um, late 70s and early 80s, late 70s, when I didn't think things could get any darker. A buddy of mine sent me a set of cassette tapes. You remember cassettes?
1: What, yeah, we just heard heard a little story about
0: them. A long time ago. That's a long time Mm ago. (laughs) And the cassette tapes were a set of lectures that were given by a man whom I already knew. I'd already read some of his novels and some of his writings, but I'd never heard him except until I heard him on these cassettes. And I fell in love with what I heard. I listened to those cassettes over and over and over and over. And they provided me some hope during this incredibly bleak period in my own personal life. And then those tapes were converted into a book and i read that book and read it and read it i just started rereading it for i don't know how many times i've read that book but i just started rereading it this week again and during during the time that i was reading that book i met a woman <laughs> and i fell in love <laughs> and on our second date I gave this woman sitting here, Dr. Sherry Beeman, a copy of that book. And in the flyleaf I had written to Sherry from Bill at the beginning. Wow. On our second date. That's how confident I was. And the name of the book is a book called The Sacred Journey by Frederick Beekner. Folks, it's out of print. But it's in reprint. I mean, it's in. You can get it, and it is so wonderful to read. And Frederick Bigner, you all know, he died what two weeks ago? Yeah. About two three weeks ago, Bigner died. And maybe one of the things you don't know about Bigner is that his father committed suicide, and that's in the book. And it's about how he and his family came to deal with that. So um, I just I wanted you to know about that and something about Journey.
1: So, so much of our spiritual journey is equated with that metaphor, right? This, you just mentioned so many examples from different traditions that are about journeying or going out, so journeying in some sense is going outside of the self to find the self, right? We're intended to draw towards the importance of process, not destination. I mean, who am I kidding? If the destination is winning the World Series, I still want to win the World Series. But <laughs> as we get into this topic, it feels important to get clear on what we mean by the words we're using. Each one of us has a very different relationship to what is sacred, to what is God, to what is the journey. So just know that whatever I offer is, is totally mine. You may or may not relate to it. I hope you do. But I'm at, we're in process with all of these words. These three themes came up for me as I um, listened to Bill last week and as I continue to read and write and contemplate my own journey. The first is, what is my relationship to myth? The second is, what is my relationship to prayer? <laughs> You're gonna talk about that one. And then of course third, how do I define sacred? I think each of us can point to a few pivotal moments in our life that may be kind of apocalyptic, those that reveal, reveal something within, that taught us new understandings or changed the way we thought. Think about those and write them down. Spend some time with them. What are the moments that led you to where you are? There may be just three, but they're, they're all connected somehow. What was the first time you fell in love, for example? Or when you learned that your parents were wrong? Or maybe worse, that they had lied to you about something. When I was small, this mythic figure of my paternal grandfather was huge. He died before I was born, and I knew him only I still only know him through stories and photos. In fact my kids just heard a story about him blowing up bridges and as the ax with the axis powers to prevent the Or against the axis powers not with the axis powers sorry he was not a nazi um but anyways those stories about him continue to the next generation so the myth of him is still alive he was the closest thing to god i could imagine he was um, old (laughs) he was white he was heroic and he was larger than life he did not have a beard He was an engineer, a college football player. He was known to be boisterous and loud and funny, and he loved little girls, apparently. So all of your kind of quintessential American, at least for that time, kind of characteristics. You can see that my idea of God was very regional. My idea of God was very close to home. When I prayed, I actually conjured an image of my grandpa, Charlie, and thought that God's name was basically Charlie, and you know there's that joke about Howard be thy name?
2: <laughs>
1: to, me, to me, it was always gonna be Charlie. Um, he's still, I mean still, today, I, I think that I know this man, and he is mythic. It is so powerful to be enraptured by myth. It connects us to some sense of belonging, to place, to family. We tell stories about our ancestors who we never met, or culture. Myths deal with themes like how life was created, how the universe came into being, what happens when we die, and they date back to early, early, early human history. I have no idea if other creatures tell such stories. I don't know if elephants have story time or whale sounds are actually stories, but they, we seem to be able to make meaning out of stories. This is how we create meaning. Yeah? Okay. (laughs) Myths can also be part of theories. The Jesus myth theory, that's sort of a mouthful, poses the idea that Jesus was not a historical person, but just a mythic archetype. I'm not agreeing with that per se, but I do think that Jesus has mythic, historic, and archetypal qualities. It's all three. So what was your first myth that grabbed hold of you? Again, spend time with this. What really got into you and sort of guided some of your early thoughts. I imagine, and this is a huge assumption, that most of us were, at one point or another, captivated by the myth of a personal God who's out there, who loves us, who acts on our behalf, and moves the great forces of the universe just enough for us to be okay. He's never just gonna totally flick us off the edge, but this kind of God that's got the whole world in his hands. I imagine that there are just as many of us that prayed to that God or begged this God to act on our behalf and were, at least on occasion, disappointed that our prayer wasn't answered. This brings up a question to me about prayer. Uh, A lot of the messaging I got, direct and indirect, was that if you pray correctly, you will be blessed. If you ask correctly, you will get what you want. This competition comes up a lot with this kind of God. In my own journey, I've come to let go of this all-knowing, all-powerful, cosmic soup-stirring God, that no judgment at all if this God is very alive and real to you. This is just where I am. It's comforting to hold on to a God that directs, because the universe is so huge, and we are so small. And I think we want to know that we are held, and we are. We've done so much, however, with our smallness, both good and bad, both creative and destructive. We are part of this process. We are part of evolution, and therefore part of the myths that are unfolding. They're very personal, they're very intimate, and they're very cosmic, and they're very eternal. We have this incredible immense capacity as humans to do harm through our myths, through our behaviors, and we also have this incredible capacity to heal what is broken.
0: So the, I think the first myth that I, I, that grabbed me as a kid, I certainly had a myth of a scary God and a scary Jesus. Mm-hmm. I mean that was just that came with the religion I got. Jesus is going to come back like a thief in the night to get me. That's mm-hmm. what I grew up with,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I was scared of the dark. The other myth that I grew up with was Santa Claus.
1: Yeah, those, group of the I, I thought Grandpa Charlie was Santa Claus also. Yeah. I mean, he, was, he kind of fit this all-encompassing, whatever I didn't have an answer for, with Grandpa Charlie. <laughs> so,
0: now, so uh, do, you, do you think, And because this is, this is kind of where I'm going next week, um, the, the power of myth has kind of died out in our time? Hmm. I mean, do you think the super movies, the superhero movies, are a replacement for the myth? that people are hungry for? My,
1: my instant reaction to have myths died out is no. It, and maybe precisely for the reason that you're stating. We, are, we recreate, America has its own myth. There, we, you know, America is the myth of this, the great city on the hill, right? So w- w- myths are constantly evolving. And, there, and there's people, and I'll get into this in a second, that, that say we need new myths. We need new myths that can guide us, that can show us, that are just new evolutions of the myths that have always existed, the journey through which that we enter and then come out of. They're just different ways of talking about the journey.
0: So to respond to what you said about Jesus, Jesus was a historical character Mm -hmm. about which a mythic story Mm -hmm. was created. Mm -hmm. And the mythic story created about Jesus came from the Jewish religion. Make sense? I mean, uh, we've said this enough that it should be part of your DNA. The Jesus followers are Jewish. Jesus died. Um, Now, I know if you go to um, a fundamentalist, literalist church, you won't hear this today. But uh, Jesus didn't die and pop up out of the ground three days later. The resurrection story was something that the scholars now say probably took three years to construct to come to terms with Hmm. and where did they do that they did that in the context of the Jewish synagogue until they got to the point where they said this is for everybody and the separatist Jews said no it's not and they kicked them out of the synagogue and that was the start of the Jesus movement, the Jesus, which didn't meet in churches like I thought they did when I was a kid, they met in people's houses, it was a very small thing, but they still were centered around their understanding of the the, the myth of Moses and Abraham being the, the way to a kingdom of peace and justice, and that's how the Jesus narrative got constructed. Mm-hmm. right the at mm-hmm. that the story that was created about jesus birth there's a herod kills all the babies well that's a replication of the babies who were killed at the passover story there's no historical evidence that during herod's time such a massacre ever occurred baptism was a ritual that john the baptist came up with that was a replication of purification in the jordan waters that was the substitute for the crossing of the Red Sea. So the story of Jesus is built around this Jewish myth of God setting, God choosing a people and God setting those, those people free. Yes.
1: There's also myths that, and one that I was gonna mention, there are myths that help create story, um, theories. Right, So the, one of the myths that I love in the Jewish mystical tradition of the Kabbalah is the story of tikkun olam, where a giant vessel of light broke into millions and millions and millions of pieces and embedded in each of us is a tiny, tiny shard of that light, including you and including me. So that original light that exists in all of us is not so unlike these ancient, the ancient stardusts that manufactured our bones, that created this planet, that we are sitting in and among. But the myth is that as we perform acts of healing and love that we restore the light to its original unity. It might be fragmented, it might be fractured, you might see the broken lines, but we restore it to its original (laughs) unity. And so that myth actually relates to the theory of the Big Bang, right? Where light exploded and became differentiated and became the galaxy, the cosmos, the universe that we're sitting in, right? So myth feeds theory, too, and then theories have all kinds of myths that are created around them. So there's this deep relationship between theory, what is true, what is accepted as the most true, and what is, what is story. Yeah.
0: So. Um I think we may have gotten our slides turned we, upside down. Well, I think down, we, you
1: it, just jumped over a whole bunch of stuff, but that's not, uh, it's all right. That's all right. He's a preacher. He's gonna be like, well, you want to go it's back it's and it? fix it? No, it's all right.
0: <laughs> I was just going to say, and this, is, uh, you're right, we're straying, but I was just going to say that one of the things that I think is so exciting about talking about this journey is that we get a chance to um, go back and, and um, more consciously, since hopefully we are more aware uh do the deconstruction use that word uh, earlier that we need to do particularly around the the concept of dualism um that's, that's one thing and the whole business of, of of questing um i find this and by the way i just want i want to thank you for the flowers you don't know about this i want to thank yeah, oh you I uh, I want to thank you there were flowers in the sanctuary today dedicated to or in honor of of me because I have a birthday coming up Tuesday and um, I feel as energetic and excited about this as an 18 year
2: old
0: that's good Glad. Mm. so I want you to do that
1: okay so the, you just mentioned dualism, though, that part of the deconstruction is deconstructing dualism, the God out there versus in here, the you versus me, the us versus them, that, the dualistic nature of every all the language that we have. And I return again and again and again to this phrase that is about cosmological evolution that is autonomous and embedded. It's a non-dualistic idea. We are both individuals but we are also embedded in this collective whole we're autonomous and we're embedded we're interconnected and we're also unique in the field of cosmology we create stories that are called auto cosmologies so auto means self and cosmology is the the study of the cosmos about how we make sense of our own story our own sense of belonging our own existence within this great expanse of time and space there's did you ever read the star thrower by lauren isley i love that story yeah well that's just one story but the whole book is kind of his is kind of his auto cosmology how he comes through this are you going to
0: tell the story
1: the star thrower no i'm going to tell what he arrives at after the story i'll mention yeah wow (laughs) i got some shade over there um i'll tell it all right so lauren isley wrote this book called The Star Thrower. And he writes it through this very nihilistic stage that he's in. He's a scientist, he's a philosopher. He's really struggling with meaning. His parents had died. The world was not what they promised. He's realizing that there's death. And he saw no hope in acts of kindness because he knew death was coming for him no matter what. And he was not moved by the supernatural. He was not moved by any ideas of beyond. He stays in this kind of prison of his own making for a while until he becomes upon a star thrower who is a man throwing starfish back into the ocean who have been beached one by one by one. And the colloquial response to that is, why are you doing that? Look at all of these starfish that are on the beach. And the man holds up the one and says, it matters to this one. I told him.
0: <laughs> you, I tell you, you will want to touch me after to this because I actually heard Lauren Osley give that story oh, at Rice University that's years ago.
1: Yeah, yeah. He, he's great. He's a wonderful writer, and I do actually great storyteller. Well. Yeah. So, but something comes alive in him as he shrugs off. He sees this starthorpe walking down the beach and throwing the starfish in one by one by one, and something comes alive in him about the universe itself that he is part of this. And he decides, I do love the world. I love the small ones, the things beaten in the strangling surf, the bird singing, which flies and falls and is not seen again. I love the lost ones, the failures of the world. It was not a rift, but a joining, the expression of love projected beyond the species boundary. Silently, he sought and picked up a still-living star, so this nihilistic man, who has no sense of meaning anymore, picks up a starfish and flings it out into the waves. I understand now, he says. And he flung, and he flung, and he flung again, while all around us roared the insatiable waters of death. That's his autocosmology. I'm going to live anyway. I'm going to love anyway. And I hope, I hope I will love like this, that I do or that I'm learning to, that in spite of suffering and death and doubt, that we can love anyway. In the face of all of it, I think that that's really the call that we are embedded in, is connection. The way that we love one another, the way that we love the world, the way that we love across the species boundary matters. So the question that I love that Viktor Frankl asks is, what does life expect from you? What starfish needs throwing back from you? In the interest of time, do you want to go?
0: No, okay. I'm good. Okay.
1: So it is not to say, and, and that star thrower myth is just a myth, it's just a story. Right? It, it's a story that beckons something from us, that calls something forth from us. And in, in saying that I don't have this idea of an out-there God or, or a use for um, this cosmic soup-stirring God anymore, it doesn't mean that I don't have a use for myth or that I don't have a use for ritual. Again, these things connect us to where we are. They plant us firmly. and they, But we can't mistake these things, ritual, religion, prayer icons for the terrain. There's there's this great saying from The Great Adventurers that says, don't mistake the map for the terrain. Religions, rituals, myths, all of these are just maps. The, The terrain is life itself. The terrain is what you're doing, how you're living. And these pieces that we call upon to connect us to the terrain, they're just mirrors. They remind us that we're part of a long history of seekers and meaning makers and wayfinders, of journeyers. They are the, the, they're, they're the way that we find through the, through the, I'm losing my words for a second, <laughs> the way that we find our way through the journey. These are the maps and the terrain is the struggle, the triumphs, the missed opportunities, the paths taken or not taken. It really amounts to we are the ones we have been waiting for. There is no out there that's going to save us. There is no, again, cosmic soup stirring God that is going to direct our life for us. We are the ones we've been waiting for. We're the ones that decide how we show up in life. I'd venture to say that our external covenants with one another are broken. We are living in a time of of mistrust. Our relatedness has been ruptured. Uh, I know in the last couple years, I sort of have a, a much less willingness to kind of embrace the stranger, if you will, because of this idea of, you know, my, I, I feel this sense of, is this a risk for my family? Um, can I trust that, that the people that I'm interacting with mean well for my family, for my brown boys and my black husband? So this sense of mistrust is, is alive in us. There's Um, A sociologist, Robert Bella, wrote that our external covenants, the laws, policies, and institutions in which we operate every single day, he says they must become internal covenants. They need to be filled with meaning and devotion in the same way that our spiritual lives are, that we need to have a spiritual relationship to the institutions in which we operate. They, too, are not separate from us. We need a spiritual rhythm that heals this broken shell and... Again, religion is just a map that helps us repair, but we are the ones that shape the terrain. We are the ones that create the journey. It does not happen without our co-creation. And uh, I think almost 45 years ago, Robert Bella wrote, this was in a time of other broken covenants. During the 60s and 70s, he wrote, America is not innocent. We are not the saviors of mankind. And it is well for us to grow up enough to know that. But there have been Americans at every point in our history who have tried to pick up the broken pieces, tried to start again, tried once more to build an ethical society in light of a transcendent ethical vision. This too is part of our tradition. And if we can find no sustenance there, our prospect is even darker than it now seems.
0: So, um, Oh well, you know I've met Robert Bella. Yeah. And uh,
1: <laughs> Laura Robert Bella. I have.
0: <laughs> I've been so incredibly blessed. Mm-hmm. I had uh, Robert Bella spoke at a conference when I was at Harvard, and I asked if we could go to dinner, and we did. We spent. Robert Bella is the guy who gave us the phrase civil religion. hmm And uh, we have that in our culture. And when we, when the president said God bless our troops, that's civil religion way anyway. mm-hmm. so uh, you're going we're, we're gonna use myth and story and and I w- I want to say by the way I' Robert Robert Johnson told a, a story very similar to star maker story Star through story called the rainmaker and he said I'm not going to tell the story now but he said if you understand the story you you understand all of my the- psychology mm-hmm and um, the first story that Robert Johnson introduced to me of a mythic dimension was the story of Parseval and the Holy Grail, mm-hmm. which I'm going to do next Sunday, I think. That's the direction I want to go, because I think that we need a reintroduction of myth. And, and, we, and that was a time when myth came back into the consciousness of homo sapiens in the Western world, the Parsifal and the search for the Holy Grail story. So if you don't know it, we're gonna we're gonna do that. So Jesus is going to be our guide for this thing that we're gonna do. And I just want to say, you know, Jesus, according to the narratives, he went to church all the time. Well, he called it synagogue, but he was always going off to the synagogue and doing. Jesus prayed all the time. One of the things that is a remarkable thing about Jesus is that he went off to pray for a long time. I think it's fair to say that he had
1: a daily daily spiritual spiritual
0: practice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he told stories. And and can you imagine somebody in the crowd, when Jesus was telling the story of the prodigal son of the good Samaritan, somebody elbowing a guy next to him and saying, he's just making this up, you know. Yeah. Or this didn't really happen. It was a story that conveyed powerful, powerful, powerful myths. So um, there's a lot that that we can gain from Jesus. I think of Jesus kind of like the alphabet. We all think we know it It's simple It's just 26 letters, but you can write anything with it, and it's inexhaustible, right? Oh, Um, there there are two sources primarily right now that both Holly and I are looking at. Holly had been telling me for four or five years.
1: At least. At
0: least, to read this book. (laughs) It's by Edward Edinger, a man who is a great um, he was he's deceased now, Jungian psychologist in New York. It's a really little book.
1: Did you, did you meet him too? Huh? Did no, I did meet not meet him.
0: him. But one of my friends had him as her therapist.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, just, one, just
0: created. This what can stage I say? <laughs> I didn't make this up. Uh, this is a short book, easy to read. Unfortunately, it's not on a Kindle device, which is what I prefer to read, but. It's a very readable book, and you will be astounded if not, you will be astounded when you get this and read it how much Carl Jung wrote about Jesus and about the Christian movement. It will stun you. I mean, I was stunned by how much Edinger, who's a great scholar, had pulled this work together. And the other the resource that we're going to use is a book by my, my uh, one of my heroes, uh, John Sanford. The king, uh, he wrote this book, "The Kingdom With the Intermeaning of the Teachings of Jesus." Neither one of these is a difficult read, um, so I hope that you can get to it. Um, as I said, I, I don't use the word. I try not to use the word God. Uh, use the word grace. I'm graced. Thank grace. Grace. Grace abounds. And, and and to be sure that, that this grace protects us from absolutely nothing. But sustains us in everything. And where I got this idea was from Jesus.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Who called God Daddy, mm-hmm.
1: by the way. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll skip far ahead,
0: yeah? Okay. I'm going to have to run. I know.
1: We'll close here. There's, there, all of the myths that I have shared today in some way are about picking up the broken pieces, picking up the starfish, reassembling the light. There's also that work to be done within, to pick up the broken pieces and to reassemble them somehow into some form of wholeness. There's a Hindu legend that I love about the definition of sacred or divinity, uh, in which the, the, the Hindu or the gods are sitting around and they're talking about how humans have have betrayed or abused their divinity. And Brahma, the chief god, decided to take it away from them and hide it where they would never find it. Brahma calls a council of the gods to help him decide where to hide the divinity, and he says, one of them says, let's bury it deep in the earth. But Brahma said, no, that will not do. One day the humans will dig deep down into the earth and they'll find it. So the gods said, well, let's sink it in the deepest ocean. And again, Brahma says, nope, that will not do. They will learn to dive into the deepest waters and search the ocean and find it. Then they said, well, then let's take it to the top of the highest mountain and hide it there. And Brahma again replies, nope. (laughs) Eventually, humans will climb the tallest mountain and they will find it. So the gods give up and they say, we don't know where to hide it. It seems there's no place on earth or in the sea or on mountains that the humans will not eventually reach. So Brahma thinks for a long time. And he says, here's what we'll do with that divinity. We'll hide it deep down inside humans themselves. They will search the whole world, but they won't look for it inside of their true selves. That's my definition of sacred.
0: That's a good one. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this. You carry sacred cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next Sunday.